0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. Our prayer is that through this message, you will find the Father, a family, and a fulfilling future. Be sure to connect with us online at Cornerstone Church Social to keep up with all things Cornerstone. Thanks for tuning in. Amen, amen. Why don't you high-five somebody next to you and grab a seat? Man, oh man. I don't know how I'm supposed to preach after that. I, I got to be careful for second service. I might lose my voice going into second service. Well, man, I'm so excited you guys are here with us today. It's good to see everybody. Hey, who, who filled out a bracket this week? Anybody fill out brackets? Anybody online? All right, a few people. Um, if you filled out a bracket, how's it doing? Is it doing All right. <laughs> Look, I, I got to tell you, I started off real hot. Like the first eight games, I was 7-1, and one, and then everything fell apart. <laughs> and it just completely fell apart, which is pretty much what happens every single year. I will say I'm, I'm proud of my alma mater. I'm a University of Akron guy, and they, they showed up. They showed up. They took UCLA to the limit. I, I'm not going to, you know, they kind of got hosed by some calls by the refs, but, you know, I'm a good Christian man. I can forgive those refs for the calls, but... Uh, man, well, ho- hopefully you guys, even if your brackets are busted, are having a good weekend. I'm having a good weekend. We are in part three of this series, How God Became King. And what we're doing in this series is we are studying the kingdom of God, what that means, what it means when we talk about the kingdom of God, what it means when we say that God is king, what it means for us as Christians and even as non-Christians that God is king. So that's where we're at, what we're studying. I'm going to give you just... Real quick cliff notes of where we've been in case you've missed any of these weeks. And if you have, I want to encourage you, please go back online, check out our sermon archive. All of these weeks in this series, this is a seven-week series, and each week is going to build one on top of the other. So if you've missed any, you're definitely missing out. So make sure that you go back, check those two weeks out if you've missed them. But like I said, here's a real quick cliff notes of where we've been. So week one, we had a sermon entitled Between the Cradle and the Cross. We talk about how so often Christianity and not just those of us inside of the faith, but even people who are non-believers, we, we can focus so much on the cradle and the cross. We can focus so much on Christmas and Easter, these two huge miraculous moments in Jesus' life. And we put such a huge emphasis on them, which is great, because those are pretty big pivotal moments, but so often we miss the ministry of Jesus. We miss what he did during his three years of ministering on earth, and when we miss the ministry of Jesus in favor of the miracles of Jesus, we miss Jesus. So we can't do that. We've got to look at what he did in his ministry, which namely was usher in this new reality called the kingdom of God, which brings us to where we were last week. We discussed the idea that the kingdom of God is not what so many of us think that it's some place that we go to one day, that here on earth is just, Neh, and we're just passing through anyways, right? This isn't our home. One of these days, we're gonna to go to where we're supposed to be, That that's actually not how Scripture refers to our time here on earth, that our time here on earth is a blessed time, and what we're supposed to do is not count down the days until we leave here, but we're supposed to be trying with all of our might to bring heaven here. We're supposed to be following what Jesus said we should do in the Lord's Prayer, let heaven come to earth through the way that we live, the way that we treat other people, and the way that we let Christ rule as king in our own life. So that's where we've been, and that brings us up to today. Now, I, I've, I've done this a few different times whenever I've uh, preached. I, I've let people know, like a little disclaimer at the beginning. Sometimes I'm more of a preacher, and sometimes I'm more of a teacher. Today is going to be more on the teacher side. We're going to be teaching today. And it's actually funny. I, I changed up my sermon quite a bit from last night. We have a Saturday service, uh, 6 o'clock. If you know anyone who could make a Saturday service, be sure that you're inviting them. It's a great time. We actually had a pretty packed house last night, too. It was awesome to see that. Uh, but it was funny. Chaparral's uh, across the street, they had a huge fight night event. And we, We've got, kind of got a partnership with them. They let us use their parking lot. We let them use ours. Man, if you drove by here last night, it looked like revival was breaking out. <laughs> like, shoot, people are paying to park at church. This is outrageous. Like, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. But I did. I, I changed things up a little bit uh, since last night. I always joke with our Saturday service that they're like, you know, how comedians, before they get ready to do a big show, they'll kind of go to a, a, another comedian show and, like, test new material there. I'm like, that's what you guys are, Saturday service. You're, you're the testing ground before Sunday morning. So uh, today I'm, I'm really excited for this sermon. Um, what I want to do, I want us to start off with a quick question. How many people, if you have a significant other, how many people can remember meeting their significant other's family for the first time? Hands up, hands up, hands up online if you're online. Can you remember that? It, for some of I see like the look of horror in some people's face like, I'll never forget. It, it explained so much, right? Uh, I, I can actually remember this with my wife, Jessica. I remember meeting her parents for the first time. And I also very, detailed. Remember her meeting my family for the first time. If you've been at Cornerstone for a while, you may have heard this story before, but we've got so many new people. I had to share it again. My wife, whenever she came over for the first time, whenever we were dating, um, she came over, met my mom. My dad wasn't home yet, so she didn't have a chance to meet him, but met my mom, and I'm kind of giving her a tour of the house. My, my room, like at this point, because my brother and sister moved out, but like my room was the entire basement which was awesome because there's like a fireplace in my room. I'm like, this is awesome. So I'm like, look, this is my room. Isn't this cool? And this is this, this, and this is this. And whenever she's looking in my room, she kind of walks over and notes, right above the fireplace, in the place of honor in my room, right right above the fireplace mantle, I'm a big Seinfeld fan. Big Seinfeld fan. There is an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza takes a very, you know, risque picture of himself. He's... (laughs) This is Jason Alexander we're talking about, too, if you don't know what this is. He's he's laying down on, like, a velvet couch with, like, black socks up to here, boxer briefs on, and he's, like, just kind (laughs) of posing on the couch. And I have that poster framed and mounted above my fireplace. (laughs) Jessica's in my room. She's, like, kind of looking around. This woman has never seen an episode of Seinfeld before. And... She's never seen my dad. Kid you not, she looks at the picture, is quiet for a moment, and then says to me, and she's not trying to be funny, she's dead serious, she says, is that your dad? (laughs) Which please please do yourself a favor, do yourself a favor, and look up that photo. I I can't in good conscience put it up here on a Sunday morning. But on your own time, watch an episode of Seinfeld, you'll see it. I started dying. I'm like, no, no, that's not my dad. That's Seinfeld. You've, you've completely made me rejudge whether I should have this poster up or not. I'm taking it down immediately. Uh, but as she got to meet my dad, <laughs> and as she got to meet my mom, so much stuff came into picture for her, like so many things about me, because she had already started to get to know me, so now she gets to know my family, and it gives her so much more depth into who I am. She sees that I'm in ministry. She meets my parents, realizes they're both pastors and be like, oh, okay, this makes sense. She sees some of my little tendencies, then starts talking to my dad and sees how he has some of the same kind of tendencies, right? Sees my sense of humor that I would even have that kind of poster <laughs> hanging up, then meets my dad, meets my mom, and is like, oh, yeah, this, this makes sense. Like, all of, all of me made more sense when she got to know the rest of my family. The same is true of Jesus. Whenever we get to know who Jesus is, whenever we say that Jesus is king and Jesus is part of of a triune God, he's part of the Trinity, he's part of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, whenever we say this and we actually look into what that means, that Jesus isn't just this guy who steps onto the pages of history in the book of Matthew, but that, no, he is a co-eternal God who has been existing and he has relationship, suddenly we start to see him with all the richness and the depth that we should see him with, and it changes everything for us. We realize that Jesus is the culmination of a story that has been being told for thousands and thousands of years before he even steps onto the pages of history. And so what we're going to do today, we're shifting our focus. The first two weeks of the series, we talked a lot about kingdom. What the kingdom of God looks like. Today, we're focusing not on the kingdom, but on the king. We're going to be looking at who is king. What does it mean when we say that Jesus through God is now king? What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be studying two sections of Scripture today, both of them from the book of Luke. The book of Luke is a book that was written by a man who uh, investigated the aspects of Jesus' life. He knew a lot of the firsthand eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. He recorded their testimonies in his own gospel, and he told the story of Jesus's life, so we're going to start today in Luke chapter four. Luke chapters one and two record Jesus's birth. Luke chapter three records uh, uh, the uh, events of John the Baptist's life, kind of like a forerunner to Jesus. He was Jesus's cousin. He was someone who God rose up to prepare the way for Jesus. And then Jesus enters uh, into his full time ministry here in Luke chapter four. We're going to skip ahead to verse fourteen. This is what Scripture tells us. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. This is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed him. This scroll We actually have it. It's in our Old Testament. If you have a Bible, the Old Testament book of Isaiah is what Jesus was reading from here. Jesus unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I love how Luke really paints the picture here in these next verses. Listen to what he says. Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked on him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. This is an incredible moment that we read from scripture, an absolutely incredible moment that. Once we dive into this a little bit more, you're going to understand the full weight of what just happened. So we're going to be coming back to the scripture a little later in the sermon. So we're going to put a pin in that for now, and we're coming back to it. So today, if you're taking sermon notes, our title is The Return of the King, The Return of the King. And what we're going to be looking at is how Jesus is king and how Jesus is God, and he is a very specific king, and he is a very specific God. Let's pray real quick, all right? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you as we read from the book of Luke today. We can know that what we're reading isn't just a story. This isn't a, a made-up thing to help us feel good, but this is truth. This is accurate history written by someone who was persecuted for not, willing, not being willing to deny these things for saying this is what I saw, this is what the people around me said they saw, and I'm preserving this truth for future generations. Thank you for Luke and for what he did that now here today, over 2,000 years later, we can be reading about the events of Jesus' life because of his faithfulness and his trust in you. God, help this word to be illuminated in our hearts this morning, that we would see it with your eyes and we would learn from it what we need to. We love you and we pray all this in your name, amen. So like I said, this is an incredible moment that we just read from. Um, And one thing I want to say, as we read from the Bible, this is something that I mentioned a few weeks back, and I just want to reiterate again. This is so important that we understand the Bible, as amazing as it is, how wonderful it is, we can never just say it's a guidebook for us, right? We can't say it's a guidebook. Uh, If you want to live a good life, that's what the Bible's for, so that you can live a good life. That's actually not what the Bible's about. We, we try to sum it up into all these little things I, I shared with you, the, the acronym that we try to say what the Bible is, right? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, amen, right? Like that's, that's, that's not, that's actually not what it is. Of course, there are instructions in it. Of course, in some areas, it does guide us and tell us what we need to do. But the overarching point of the Bible isn't for it to be a guidebook or a list of instructions before leaving earth. The Bible is a story. It's an overarching story. It is 66 separate books written over thousands and thousands of years by multiple different authors, but they're all telling one gigantic overarching story, and that story is how God has now become king. That's the story. And with most stories, not just scripture, but with most stories, we will notice that there is a recurring theme. We see this. We see this in stories nowadays. Um, uh, Batman, right? There's a new Batman movie just came out. There's a guy on uh, uh, TikTok who me and uh, Owen and Pastor Donnie, we've been laughing at these and a few other people on the staff. There's this guy on TikTok who's been making these like little point of view videos, like point of view that you're living in Gotham. um, And like, this is what it looks like whenever you're living in Gotham and you try to swim. And the dude's like jumps into a pool, he dives into the pool, and as he does, he looks over and sees a sign that says no diving. Batman shows up and he's like, no diving, and he starts beating the tar out of the dude, right? There's another one, it's like a little old lady, she's sitting down at a bench and she accidentally drops like her butterscotch wrapper. Batman shows up and's like, "Litterbug," bug, and starts like beating the tar out of her. Like it's just this, this recurring theme over and over. He's got like a bunch of these videos, and the whole point of it, the whole reason it's funny is if you've ever seen any Batman movie, ever except for the ones back in the 60s which were like cartoonish that's batman's mo like vengeance like he's just gonna <laughs> he's gonna take out all of his pain and aggression on anybody who is around him it's a recurring theme that pops up in literally every single batman movie batman tv show batman comic The story has this recurring theme. And we actually see recurring themes in Scripture. Even though it's 66 separate books, even though it's spread out over thousands of years, there's a recurring theme that pops up time and time and time again. And this is the recurring theme. The recurring theme of Scripture is this. God wants to rule with people. He wants to rule with us. He wants the world to be subdued by people who are ruling it alongside God. God wants to rule with us We rebel, and he has to rescue us. It's the same thing over and over and over and over. The recurring theme of Scripture is rule, rebellion, and rescue. I would tell you, if you start reading Scripture, you'll see it all over the place now. Now that you know that that's there, you'll see it time and time again in the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve, tells them, hey, go out, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the world, rule it. I want to partner with you. I want you to be my image bearers in the world, and I want to partner with you to rule the world. What do Adam and Eve do? They rebel, think they know better, think that they've got better ideas than God does, and what does God have to do? He has to come in and rescue them, come in and provide a way out. We see it happen again. We see it happen in the flood narrative. Mankind was then intended to rule with God. We rebelled against him. God had to rescue us, rescue Noah and his family. It happens over and over and over again. So as you're reading through the Old Testament, you keep seeing this. You see it in the Garden of Eden. You see it in the flood. You see it in the Exodus narrative as God frees the nation of Israel from Egyptian slavery. We see it as Israel starts becoming their own nation, and these leaders rise up to lead them called judges. We see over and over again, they start to kind of get it right. They start to rule the way they're supposed to, and then they rebel, and then God has to come in and rescue them again. It keeps happening, and it keeps happening all the way way up until God actually helps the nation establish themselves. They're not ruled by judges anymore. They're ruled by kings. They've become a a big boy nation, right? They're they're a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. But the same thing keeps happening. They're finally at this place. They're finally at this step where you think, okay, here you go. You've got your kingdom. You're set up in the land that God told you you were going to have. All you have to do now is rule with him. All you have to do is agree about the current situation on the ground and agree with God. Be like, yep, this this is where I this is where I need to change. This is where I need to be more like him. This is where I need to be more holy. This is where I need to follow God's way better. That's all we have to do and they blew it. They blew it. In the middle of this intended rule, they rebelled once again. And this is where the rebellion reached its peak. And what's so frustrating is whenever you look in the Old Testament, you see time and time again, God's trying to accommodate these people. He's trying to help them. Even in the law, even in the law that God gives, you see God's accommodation. God will give a law and then he follows it up with, and here's what you're supposed to do when you don't follow it. Because I know you won't. Because I know you're going to mess it up. I know you're going to make mistakes. I know you're going to sin against me. Even though God has been accommodating and doing all this stuff, we still rebel. The nation of Israel still rebelled. And that rebellion reached its peak in the year 586 BC. 586 BC, the nation of Israel was completely destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. They came into the city of Jerusalem, destroyed most of the city, completely destroyed the temple of God, took artifacts from the temple out the, the artifacts that were holy, the artifacts that were supposed to be in there to help them worship God. They took those out, took them back to their own pagan temples, destroyed the temple. And I want us, it's so hard for us to, to really do it, but try to imagine that moment. This isn't like nowadays where if, you know, someone came in and destroyed our church, we're like, oh, we'll just go find another church. <laughs> just go hop to another one. No. The temple, the temple, we read in, in scripture that the temple was the physical location of God's presence here on earth, that that's where God dwelled, that ter- that's where you could come to make sacrifices to atone for sin, that's where you could come to worship in a formal way, and it's gone now, destroyed. God essentially through his prophets was saying, because you have continued to rebel against me, what I'm going to do I'm gonna remove my presence from you. Since you think you can do this on your own, since you're obviously rejecting me as your king, all right, I'll let you have the consequences of that choice, and that's exactly what happened. The nation of Israel was taken over by the Babylonian empire, and here's, here's what's crazy. Even though about 70 years later, the Babylonians now, they've been destroyed by an opposing empire, the Persian empire. Now they're in charge The Persian Empire, they actually allowed Jews to go back and start rebuilding the temple. And so the temple was rebuilt in about 516 BC. So about 70 years later, the temple was able to be rebuilt, but something was missing. Notably, their king, God. This is what N.T. Wright, the author of the book that we're basing this whole series off, this is what he writes about this time period the whole of what we call the second temple period, which is this, the second temple that's been built after the Babylonian conquest, the whole of what we call the second temple period is characterized by a sense of divine absence. The king is gone and he has not come back. That's a problem faced by the prophets. The priests are bored and they slack in their duties because although the temple has been rebuilt, there is no sense of the of god their king having returned as all the prophets said that he would and that period of time from 516 bc carries all the way forward for hundreds of years until onto the scene steps a 30-year-old galilean carpenter and as soon as he enters the picture things start to change things start to shift you see, things shift when Jesus steps into your situation, don't they? Yeah. It, was anyone with us on ministry partner night, MP night? Anybody in here, anybody online? We heard three stories of people who saw things in their life start to shift when Jesus walked into life. We had a, a moment where we had people just come up, just spur of the moment testimonies. Anybody who in the crowd wanted to come up, just the first three people. We had three incredible people come up. Uh, uh, Kendall, Karen, I, I believe, and Don came up and shared incredible stories of how things were going one way, but then Jesus, right? How, how stuff was hard, things were difficult, they didn't know how they were gonna see a way through, and then Jesus stepped into their situation. And that changes everything. That changes everything when Jesus steps in. When Jesus steps into your situation, things start to shift. I wanna tell you, if you want your marriage to look different, let Jesus step into that situation. Right? If you want your, your kids to, to, to start look, looking different, your relationship with your kids, let Jesus step in that situation. If you have destructive mindsets, if you self sabotage, man, let Jesus step in that situation. And I promise you, things will start to shift. It, it won't be instant change, but you will notice things are. Different, And that's exactly what the nation of Israel started to experience as Jesus, this unknown 30-year-old carpenter who seems to have no real background or training, steps onto the scene. All of a sudden, things start to shift. Noticeably, the silence that they felt. That divine absence that had been in place for about 500 years, it wasn't there anymore. Things were shifting, And not only were they shifting, here, here's, here's what's so important. They were shifting in a very familiar way. I'm sure as people who were following Jesus, the, these Jewish people who knew the Jewish scriptures, who read the Old Testament, they, they knew this. They knew the scriptures. I'm sure as Jesus starts his ministry and he starts ministering, people are going, I, I swear I've read this somewhere before. <laughs> like this is, this is eerily familiar. This can't just be... A coincidence, you see. Jesus steps on the scene. What's one of the first things that he does? Calls twelve disciples, echoing the twelve tribes of Israel that God called out to be uh, uh, pillars for the Jewish community. And here Jesus is calling twelve disciples. Jesus rebukes the elements. He tells the seas to be still, and they are. And I'm sure people are going, "Man, this is," I mean, this feels like the Red Sea to me. It feels like the same God who was able to cross the Red Sea, this guy's now telling the elements, and he's controlling them, and he's commanding them, echoes of the familiar. In the Old Testament, we see where God, through his prophets, heals the sick, heals the lepers, heals the lame, and now Jesus comes on the scene, and he's doing the exact same thing. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the dead are arising. One of the biggest things that Jesus does, Jesus steps on the scene and get this, he institutes new laws. Nobody does that. The greatest prophet up to this point, Moses, he didn't give new laws. Moses said, hey, look, I'm I'm like the mediator. God talked to me. I'm just sharing what he said. This is what he said to do. In walks Jesus. And Jesus is like, "No, no, no, I'm not in the place of Moses. I'm not a mediator of the law. I'm giving a new law. Jesus institutes this new law, and I'm sure people are going, who who's this guy think he is? This is, man, this, I mean, I've read this stuff before somewhere. And then not just that, not just does Jesus institute new laws, he has the audacity to say what we sang about earlier, that he has the authority to forgive sin. That's something only God can do. Again, not even the priest is able to forgive sin. The priest is the mediator, but here steps Jesus. And it's so familiar, it's just so familiar. And I'm sure all of the people around him are going, man, this this feels like God. (laughs) The things he's doing, the things that he's saying, these are echoes of the God of Israel, the God who, who promised to come and rescue us one day, but he has been so silent for so long. Man, who does this guy think he is? Which brings us back to what we read earlier this morning, let me read this again. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, this is Luke 4, 16, Jesus went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. And then he reads from Isaiah. Now, this particular piece of scripture is Isaiah 61. You can read it for yourself if you have a Bible. Just go to your Old Testament, look at Isaiah, look for chapter 61, and you'll see what Jesus read about the spirit of the Lord being on him and anointing him to proclaim freedom, to set captives free. You'll see this here. And the thing about Isaiah 61 is that prior to Jesus arriving on the scene, what we know from ancient Judaism is that this was a very important piece of scripture. Isaiah 61 was a a hopeful piece of scripture that Jews would read during this long period of silence, believing that one day God would come to rescue them. That even though they had rebelled, even though that God wanted to rule with them, but they had rebelled so bad that the temple had been destroyed and God's presence had seemingly vanished, that he was a faithful God, that he was a rescuing God, and that one day he would come back to rescue them himself. And then sure enough, Jesus reads that scripture, and then in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And Jesus began to speak to them, saying, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. You see, what Jesus was doing was unmistakable. From the start of his ministry, he was letting everybody know I'm not a carpenter, not a teacher. I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not even just a Messiah figure. The Jewish people had had a lot of those guys rise up and try to do something, and they were killed. No, 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 I'm I'm none of those things. I am the anointed one. I am the anointed one. I am the God of Israel. Come back to rescue his people. I'm the one that you have been waiting for, which this this is kind of a side note to today's sermon, but it's so important. i got to get this in here. Jesus defining himself that way is so crucial, and it's so important for us, because what that means is that Jesus is who he says he is, not who I say he is, right? Like, I don't I don't get to define him. Last week, we talked about what the kingdom of God is, that the kingdom of God is all about self-sacrifice. It's all about giving of ourself and dying to ourself, and that that can be hard for us, but guess what? We don't get to define the kingdom of God. Like, we just, we don't. God gets to define it. Well, in a very similar way, we don't get to define who the king is. He's already done it. He's let us know who he is. Jesus is who he says he is, not who I think he is, not who I'm comfortable with him being, not what I wish it would feel like for him to be. He just is who he is. It's actually, it's very similar to, so here at Cornerstone, we believe that women are supposed to be involved in ministry, that men and women are supposed to be absolutely supposed to be co-equal partners. And here is what's so vital and so important about this. If you want to come and talk to me about it, what you'll notice is if you say, okay, so Pastor Jacob, I know there's some scriptures that seem to say that that shouldn't happen. Why why does Cornerstone believe that women should be co-equal partners in ministry? You know what you're not going to hear me say? Well, (laughs) because it's time. It's 2022. I mean, it's time, right? Like, Isn't it time? You're not going to hear me say, "Well, you know, the way the culture's been going, just you know, we're trying to, just trying to go with the times." And this is where culture's been advancing, and so we're we're here too. You're, You're not going to hear that. You're not going to hear me say, "Well, you know, it just feels right. It just feels like that should be the case." What you're going to hear us point to here at Cornerstone for why women should be able to be involved in ministry is because of what we see God reveal in Scripture, what we see in church tradition what we see from our own logical reasoning that God has given us with and through our own Christian experience. That's why we believe that women should be co-equal partners in ministry, not off of feelings, not because it's not time, not because of culture, but because of how it has been defined for us. So this isn't even really a decision on our part. It's what we already see to be the case. Jesus has already stated who he is. We don't get to define him because of the time, because of our feelings, or because of the culture. He is who he says he is. I don't get to define the king. I don't get to say who he is. He has already done that. And I just want to let you know, as we kind of put a, a tie on that. That's the same with any issue at Cornerstone. Do you ever wonder, hey, they stand here on this issue. I wonder why. That's exactly why. <laughs> Scripture, Christian experience, church tradition, logical reasoning. That's why we stand everywhere we stand. Not feelings, not culture, not it's time, nothing like that. We allow it to define itself. And the same is true with Jesus. He sets his identity, not us, which all of this makes me think, I know this is far off, but I want you to mark your calendars now. The very first sermon series following Easter, so uh, the weekend of April 23rd and 24th, we're starting a brand new series called Help, I'm Losing My Faith all about deconstruction, all about the the stuff that's going around right now where people are wondering, man, what does faith even look like? Who is Jesus really? What is the Bible really? If you have any questions on that kind of stuff, you're going to want to be here for that. It's a four-week series, so end of infomercial for our next (laughs) series. But make sure you mark your calendars for that April 23rd and 24th. So again, Jesus has set his identity. We don't get to set it. He has made it very clear. And if he wasn't clear enough in Luke 4, I want us to skip ahead to one more scripture, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 41. This is just before Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, right before he's, he's heading to the cross, his death and resurrection. And as he's entering the city, this is what he says. But as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you people would understand the way to peace. Jesus is essentially saying, I wish you guys would understand what I've been wanting to do. I want to rule with you. I want to partner with you. This is what I have always longed for, but you keep on rebelling. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace, but now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in on every side, echoing exactly what we saw happen in the Babylonian conquest. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place, and here's the key, because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Jesus, if there was any confusion about who he thought he was. He cleared it up right there. He's he's saying, look, you guys have just missed it. You've missed it, you've missed it. In the book of John, he echoes this again. In John chapter five, verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you will find life and you miss the fact that they point to me. It's what he's saying here. He's like, man, I'm the God you've been waiting for. The God who's here to rescue you, the God who is here to put the final nail in the coffin of that rule-rebellion-rescue cycle. I'm here to finalize it once and for all, and you've missed it. So we we can't say that Jesus didn't know who he was. I know it's a a modern thing for people to say, you know, Jesus thought he was a good teacher. He thought he was just a, a, a rabbi or an enlightened thinker. Jesus did not make that claim about himself. He made a far greater claim. He knew who he was and he knew what he was saying when he said, you didn't recognize it the moment that God visited you. Jesus is very, very, very clearly letting it be known that the God of Israel that you've been worshiping, the creator God, the, the God who split the Red Sea, the God who saw you through the promised land, he and I are one. We are one. Jesus was letting people know he was the God of Israel, come to rescue his people. And this is a huge point. And as we get ready to close out for today, this is the crucial focus for the day. If if Jesus is not just some other God, he's not like the divine mover. He's not a God that just suddenly appears on the scene and we don't really care about the Old Testament because whatever, it's just all Jesus, it's all Jesus, it's all Jesus. If Jesus is just some God who appeared on the scene, if that's not the case, if he actually is the God of Israel, come to rescue his people, that means a lot. It means a lot. What it means is that Jesus is a rescuing God. It means that he is a faithful God. It means that he's a God who makes his promise and he sees it through. And just as he promised his people, your your rebellion has led you to be destroyed and has led you to be taken over, but I am coming back for you. That's what it means when we say that Jesus is the God of Israel, that they are one in the same, that they are one with each other, that Jesus is a rescuing God, he is a faithful God, and he is here to rescue them from their rebellion. And here's why that's important for you. If you're wondering, well, hey, what's in it for me? This is nice to know who God is, but what does this mean and how does this apply to me? What that means is that Israel's rescuing God is our God. And what it means is that Israel's story is our story. It's our story. I mean, we, these are actual events that really happen. I'm not trying to say that Israel is this symbolic stand-in for us. No, these are real stories. But we can see ourselves in the people of Israel. We can see the rule, rebellion, rescue cycle over and over in our own lives. I know we try to act like we're different. I know when we read Genesis, what's the common thing we like to say? Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. Like, oh man, thanks a lot, look what you did to us. If I would've been in the, if you would've been in the garden, God wouldn't even got day seven done, right? He would've been like, all right, now day seven. Are you eating the fruit already? You're already eating the fruit? Like, (laughs) so let's, let's not act like things would be so different. Their story is our story. Like, it's us. We are the people who are meant to rule with God, who are supposed to have him be king in our hearts, king in our lives, and we are supposed to share that rule in the world, but we are constantly rebelling. We're constantly fighting back. We constantly think we know a better way. So thank God that Jesus is the God of Israel, and he is a rescuing God, because Jesus is how we can shift from rebelling against God to ruling with God. Jesus is that transition. He is that bridge to shift us from rebelling against God to ruling with God, to doing what we were created to do, ruling in the world, carrying his rule every single place we go. That was the intention from the start. That was the intention in the Garden of Eden, and it culminates in Jesus. Now, last thing, I know I'm going a little bit over, but last thing, I just want to make sure I get in here. Um... I know some people you may be thinking, wait, hold up. So Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, they are one and the same. Kind of hard to take that because they seem so wildly different. Like, I read the Old Testament, I'm like, whoa. And then I read the New Testament, I'm like, see, why couldn't, why couldn't Jesus just <laughs> do all that stuff back then? Like, if, if they're one and the same, how, do, how, does this, how does this work? This is what I would say to that. If you're someone who you, maybe you started like a Bible reading plan this year, and you read through Genesis, and you're like, cool, I can get down with this. And then you're in Exodus, you're like, "Well, this is pretty cool, too. Then you got to, like, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you're going, ugh. Then you got to Leviticus, and you're like, I'm out. I'll read it next year. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try this again next year. If you're someone who's done that, I would like to encourage you, start with Jesus. Start with the gospel. Start with John or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start with Jesus. And here, here's why I say that. Um, I heard another pastor, pastor that I love, uh, Pastor Greg Boyd. He's used this illustration. It's so, so good. Um, Has anyone ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Hands up, hands up. Sixth Sense, everybody online, The Sixth Sense. Such a good movie. I remember my dad just butchered it and ruined it for my sister. She didn't get to see it in theaters. She went to Blockbuster to rent it. Um, Got some young people in the room. Blockbuster is this place you would go to and get physical (laughs) copies of movies, and you could, like, take them home and watch them. Uh, some people are confused, like, Blockbuster? What's a Blockbuster? Uh, so she came home with the Sixth Sense, and I'm sorry if I'm ruining this for you, this movie's been out 20 plus years, so I gave you a head start. She comes home with the movie, and my dad sees her walking through, he's like, hey, what'd you get? And she's like, oh, uh, the Sixth Sense, and he goes, oh, you believe he was dead the whole time? My sister's like, Dad, I didn't, (laughs) I haven't seen this movie, (laughs) like, I've never seen it before, just ruined it for her, right? Uh, and she was saying, like, how the whole movie, because she knew that, she's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess I can see it. But it's crazy. If you've ever seen The Sixth Sense, it's like one of the greatest twist endings of all time, whenever you realize Bruce Willis has been a ghost this whole time. He's been dead pretty much this whole movie ever since, like, 10 minutes into it. It just, it, it's like, what? How? There's no way. Now, the craziest thing is not watching it the first time, but it's watching it the second time. Because whenever you watch The Sixth Sense the first time, as it's ending, you're like, that's not fair. Like they, you know, they made, they they like cheated in some places. I know I remember him talking to people. I know I remember him, like, you know, being able to talk to people and interact with people. So they clearly, they, you know, they pulled the wool over your eyes, but he really, you know, there's no way. There's no way. And then you watch it back again and you start realizing, no, he, the only person he interacted with was this kid who can see dead people. Every other person, actually isn't talking to him, actually isn't interacting with him. And your mind is like, what? Like, this is is crazy. And what I want to tell you is that in a much greater way, Jesus is the ultimate twist ending in the middle of the biblical narrative. Once Jesus enters the scene, once his ministry comes in and things start to shift, after you read the life of Jesus, I tell you, you go back and you start looking at some of the Old Testament narratives. You start looking at the Garden of Eden. You start looking at the flood. You start looking at the Exodus and you start realizing everything through the lens of Jesus and you see how he was there the whole time. It changes everything. It changes everything. It changes the way that you see scripture. You see Jesus everywhere and you see you everywhere. You read Adam and Eve and you realize that's me. In my rebellion, rejecting God, and God still intercedes and makes a way for me to live. You read about Israel fleeing Egypt and coming up to the Red Sea, and you go, that's, that's me. <laughs> that's me constantly in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the God of Israel who splits the sea for me, giving me a chance and a way out. You read the stories of King David and how he showed so much promise and so much potential and how he almost completely squandered it and lost all of it because of his sin and his rebellion. And you realize, that's me. That's me. I'm constantly rebelling. I'm constantly trying to go my own way, thinking I know better. And here is God giving me chance after chance, accommodation after accommodation, meeting me where I'm at with grace and love and truth. You see him everywhere. And what you'll always notice, what you'll always notice is that he is the God of rescue. Not just then, but he is the God of rescue now. Whatever situation you find yourself in, he's the God of rescue. He wants to rescue. We just have to be willing. I wanna pray with you, all right? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father God, thank you for being a God of rescue. Thank you for being a God who, despite our rebellion, to ruling with you. Despite our our own desire and our own inclination to go our own way, you constantly are meeting us where we're at. You're constantly stooping and reaching down to help us and to uh, rescue us. And God, in no way did you make that more definitive than through the ministry, the life, the death, and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. With his death and his resurrection, the ultimate rescue has been granted And anyone who calls on his name can experience new life, can experience what it's like to have you as king ruling in their hearts and allowing that to change every situation they find themselves in. God, I pray for the people today who haven't made that decision yet, that they would feel their need for you, that they would feel their their need for a king to rule and to rescue in their life And that those of us, God, who have already made that decision, that we would every single moment of every single day, let you be king so that your rule would change us and therefore it would change everybody we encounter. God, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for being the incredible, incredible, incredible God who is so gracious and so merciful and so loving. We love you so much, Father. We pray all of this in the mighty and the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.